0: Hello and welcome to a bonus edition of Military History Visualized. Uh, I'm Justin. I help out with the channel behind the scenes and have occasionally appeared as a guest. Just to mention my background for those who don't know, I have a Master of Arts degree in military and intelligence history. Today I'm actually testing a new method of recording podcasts that doesn't involve me listening to an obnoxious delayed echo of my own voice, uh, which was turning my brain into mush in the um, recent IJN Capital Ship Design podcast. But instead of just doing a simple, you know, test, test, I figured um, I might as well record a little piece of bonus content for all of you. And so last year, I co-authored an article entitled Unseating the Lancer, North Korean Challenges and Intercepting a B-1B with Andy Zhao, who joins me here today. Andy, would you like to uh, briefly mention your background?
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Andy. I have a background in civil engineering, but I have a large interest in military history. And thanks to Justin here as well, intelligence. And I just love tinkering with things and how they work. So SAM systems and things like that, that somehow piques my interest.
0: All right. Uh, yeah, so uh, between the two of us, since we co-authored the article, uh, Andy can do the math. And he can also <laughs> uh, handle s- some of the more uh, heavier technical stuff. And also I uh, should mention that there was actually uh, another person that helped us out, which uh, who's mentioned in the uh, first footnote of the article. Um, and he's very into, um, modern avi- military aviation and he was, uh, his assistance was indispensable anyway. So, um, for, I'll just, I guess, briefly outline why we wrote the article in the first place. Um, so, uh, it was published about uh, a little over a year ago, actually, when things were just blowing up around North Korea, uh, the tensions, yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, fire and fury, yeah, all the crazy crap. And, um, North Korea, in kind of in passing, and they do this a lot, I don't know why they this particular case was singled out, they threatened to shoot down a B-1B Lancer because the Americans will periodically send B-1B flights somewhat in the neighborhood of North Korea. Uh, and in response to a, a flight that occurred on September 23rd that uh, occurred off its east coast, um, a reasonable amount of discussion uh, popped up on tw- Twitter among uh, certain people uh, that were kind of like, you know, wringing their hands over the possibility of the North Koreans shooting down a B-1B. And uh, Andy and I decided to write this article kind of as a rebuttal to that theory crafting.
1: After about a week of research and a bit of brainstorming, this is the article we came up with.
0: Yeah, so um, it's kind of just a, a basic article that walks very briefly through why we think that uh, that scenario was extremely unlikely um just and we we kind of took it uh, at a very like uh, a capability uh, level as they would say uh, we don't really deal too much with intention although we do a little bit in the conclusion where basically i just say that north korea has a much more effective and less risky way of provoking people that doesn't involve you know starting a war or probably worse for north korea is trying to shoot one down failing and then result. See, so you you start a war by embarrassing yourself, which wouldn't exactly uh, work out too well. So the first section uh, just outlines kind of the uh, equipment that North Korea has available. And uh, Andy, I'm wondering if you can mention uh, kind of the cliffs notes of that.
1: So the basic cliffs notes is North Korea doesn't exactly operate the world's most advanced air force or air defense systems or anything. A lot of it is carry over from the Cold War from whatever supplies they can manage to acquire from the Soviet Union. So you have a wide assortment of what some would call, nicely, of museum pieces such as like MiG-17s that they managed to acquire license produced from China, or all the way to downgraded models of the MiG-29s that they acquired in the 80s. Yeah,
0: and um, there's a a whole bunch of limiting factors, of course. Um, if, uh, they haven't been able to import aircraft equipment or parts for quite a while. I mean, every once in a while, I think they, they sent um, some MiG-21s to Cuba to be refurbished at some point.
1: but They got intercepted and then seized, yeah. but they tried. Yeah,
0: they tried. <laughs> uh, things like uh, they have very poor pilot training. They get very, very few flight hours, mainly you know, in part because they don't want to stress the airframes too much. Also, they don't want their pilots defecting, so there's a lot of problems there. The, their inventory of air-to-air missiles, a lot of it is likely expired, although we can't, of course, know for sure. Though, at least any sources with any sources available, the last ones they received were in 1987, and air-to-air missiles actually do have a shelf life. They operate a variety of ground uh, ground-based air defense platforms, but their longer-range stuff. Uh, is actually fairly limited in effectiveness. It's all pretty old stuff. Um, And the only one we're really concerned with was the S200 because that was the only one that was even remotely, possibly in range of this one flight. So pretty much everything else didn't matter. There's much discussion of the KNO6, which is kind of like this new mysterious meme system that people uh, kind of hand-ring and talk about. Oh my God, it looks slightly similar to an S300. It's going to kill everything. Although a a rather angry U.S. government source informed Anki Panda while this whole discussion was going on that the U.S. government basically watched them and it failed six of seven target intercepts and then they shoved it back into a warehouse. So it's not like some kind of super system. Now, one thing that we're not really going to get into, but we should at least mention and give them credit for is North Korea has an absolutely dizzying amount of uh, Shorad, Uh, short-range air defense systems that, you know, MANPADS, which are, you know, man-portable air defense systems. There's so so many modern acronyms that I'm throwing out there. You know, uh, good old-fashioned anti-aircraft guns of pretty much any variety you can imagine, Uh, self-propelled, some radar-guided, some guided by the Mark I eyeball. They've got everything, and they've got a lot of it. I would not want to be a helicopter pilot or an A-10 pilot or anything like that in attacking North Korea, but we're not really overly concerned with that so, Andy, would you like to walk through understanding the kill chain section?
1: Okay, so as an engineer, we like to break down things into steps or smaller parts. So let's break down how to engage an aircraft. So taking our hypothetical situation of using an S-200 to intercept a B-1B, the first part of the kill chain is detect and identify the target. While this might seem like an obvious thing, you have to realize all of these steps, a part of the kill chain has to be done successfully and has to be completed in order. So, for example, our first step is to detect and identify the target. So this could involve spotting it with your eye. It could be using a radar to track the target, or it could be using an infrared sensor to spot the target. After that, you have to identify the targets to know whether or not you're looking at the right target, whether or not it's, say, a civilian airliner or one of your own planes. Those are two things you probably don't want to accidentally shoot down. And to make sure that you are indeed tracking, for example, the B-1B. Step two is to acquire the target with fire control. So, It's not just necessarily tracking it on radar. You have to track it with the weapon system that you're currently using to try to engage the target. So in this case, the S200, it would use 5N62 square pair engagement radar, which could be a different radar system than the one used in step one to detect the aircraft. For example, a long range search radar. So this would all comprise part of the air defense net. But if worse comes to worse... The bare minimums it needs is a engagement radar to start tracking the B-1 and also to target the B-1. After it's acquired with fire control, you have to gather data from the aircraft. For example, how far is it or which way is it going? Using this information, you could guide a missile onto target to lead it properly or to set up fusing or any other like miscellaneous things that you would need to complete the rest of the chain. Step four is simply to launch your missile. So in this case, it would be the S-200 with a theoretical range of up to 250 kilometers. Step five, you have to guide the missile onto target. So in this case, a radar guided missile would have to maintain lock until it basically detonates next to the aircraft. So it's constantly receiving updates from the engagement radar to make sure that it's following the right track, it's following the aircraft. Number six, your missile has to actually do damage to the aircraft. So it has to fly nearby the aircraft to detonate near it and hopefully damage it in some way. And then number seven, you have to now do a damage assessment to see whether or not the aircraft is still flying or does it need a follow-up shot? So that's generally the seven steps to what it makes up a kill chain.
0: So uh, as we've mentioned, we're going to be... We kind of only look at the S-200 and also uh, later a fighter interception because those are really the only two options they had to intercept this one specific B-1B flight. We aren't getting into, well, what if the B-1B penetrated the airspace? No, because it never did. So we're not we're not going to uh, do that. We're looking at this one very specific engagement.
1: But if you, well, even if you did want to look at different types of scenarios, the seven steps for the kill chain
0: are still unchanged.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's like, do you still need to meet all those requirements and you still have to follow through?
0: So there's one uh, very actually famous North Korean S200 battery. I I say famous, like famous among uh, people that kind of uh, look at North Korea, uh, located on the East Coast. Um, We have a photo of it in um, our article, actually, and the, the coordinates are well known. Uh, actually what one little tidbit that we noticed was that at the time that or when we were looking at uh, the most recent commercially available imagery that we could get our hands on the engagement radar was actually missing from the site at that time Andy actually looked it up just now and it has apparently reappeared so they they were probably moving it around for training or whatever but uh, it's back now
1: so yeah we also included the Longitude and latitude on the article. So if you want to pop that into like Google Earth or Google Maps, it should show right up.
0: Yeah. And then you can see what a textbook uh, S200 site looks like. I think they even, didn't they add camo nets recently? Too?
1: Uh, no, you can still see the radar. Nah, it's like, can still exposed like those. <laughs> right? So, um, it's, yeah, it's one of two S200 batteries, I believe, located in North Korea. There's one on the West Coast and the one we look at in the articles on the East Coast.
0: And for those who don't know that the S two hundred was developed by the Soviets, it was a strategic level SAM system. Uh, it was basically designed to intercept uh, American strategic bombers. So the missile's huge; it had very impressive range. But if the thing's maneuverable, like yeah, you know, it, it, if if it, if your plane could do more than a B fifty two, you're probably okay. The S two hundred has a, a pretty dismal combat record. They fire off lots and lots and lots of those. In fact, Syria fires them off like. They've, like candy um they hit virtually nothing except for um when when we wrote our article the only uh quote-unquote success uh successful interception of an s-200 was uh, during a training exercise they accidentally shot down a civilian airliner
1: off the coast of uh, ukraine
0: i believe so yeah
1: not the best way to start off uh,
0: but since then there have been two more interceptions and andy would you like to briefly uh mention those
1: Okay, so one of the two incidences that recently appeared since the article was there was one case in February 2018 when an Israeli F-16 was actually shot down by an S-200 when they were launching airstrikes within Syria. Admittedly, that was surprising for us. (laughs) It
0: it became significantly uh, less surprising when we found out why.
1: Well, yeah, so Israeli pilots were apparently trying to observe the results of their strike, so they... Stayed in the area for a bit too long, and they were not performing invasive maneuvers.
0: Yeah, they were. They were basically just flying straight until the S two hundred hit them, like it was aimed at a target. Yeah, That's <laughs> pretty much what it was. Almost like
1: training exercise, but not quite. And the other more dramatic case was the shootdown of the IL twenty operating off the coast of Syria. That was accidentally. That was a Russian IL twenty. That was shot down by the Syrian air force by accident, mistaking it for an Israeli uh, aircraft.
0: So that's that's kind of the the glorious combat record of the S two hundred so far. Um, at least it has hit some things, although literally more often than not, it's hit something it's not supposed
1: to. Which, quite frankly, for well, uh, not quite frankly, but for a missile system from like the sixties, three incidences is not the uh, I guess prestigious. Yeah, yeah, there's
0: there's much more uh, impressive systems out there. And not to like overly bash the S200, it was designed for a very specific purpose and in that purpose it would have worked just fine. But uh the way you're the way you're seeing the S200 used now it's it's kind of beyond its original intentions so the system is really straining. But at least uh with this specific incident I'm not going to walk through every single detail because you can just uh read the article. But the the gist is, the the as far as we can like piece together, and of course, so much of it is classified or uh, fuzzy information. For uh, so, the South Korean National Intelligence Service, the NIS, uh, claimed that North Korea did not take any immediate action in response to the uh, U.S. strategic bomber's flight, and a member of the U.S. intelligence community actually reached out to us uh, and stated that. The North Koreans did pick up the flight on early warning radars, but not on their engagement radars. So as uh, Andy mentioned earlier, the North Koreans identified the target with early warning, but they couldn't shoot at it even if they wanted to because their engagement radars at least seemingly did not pick it up. And also they didn't seem to notice any uh, alerts that were sent out to uh, airfields or uh, surface-to-air missile batteries. Now we're again we're all unsure exactly why and you know we weren't going to like pin down our source and get him to divulge you know, really sensitive information so we don't know why the, Amer- the North Koreans didn't send out alerts um, you know possibilities could vary anything from confusion and or incompetence uh, to a willful decision not to notify our defense assets because they just didn't deem it a sufficient threat to do so
1: well yeah I was operating well off of their coast so yeah unless it was making an attack run maybe they probably just ignored it
0: yeah yeah oh and as an a uh, as an a little aside um and we won't get into this much either, but um we were also pointed toward a new uh at least what at the time we thought would be uh was going to become a new uh surface to air missile battery on the east coast right on the east coast actually um, and we have uh links to that at least the imagery that we had at the time and all that but um as I, I guess you just checked it now, and it's kind of the imagery isn't good enough for you to really see what's going on, right?
1: Yeah, so it's still the same imagery we managed to get from like 2017. So it's still oh, okay. You still see the trenches being dug out and like massive pits that can fit radars, and we just don't. know. We don't know what happens now.
0: Okay, and well, in the second scenario we uh, we discuss is a MiG 29, uh, specifically a MiG 29 913. Uh, interception that is literally the this is like us being as generous as possible uh, these planes are typically stationed around Pyongyang they are literally the best fighters by far in the North Korean fleet uh, North Koreans usually for interceptions send out much worse uh, MiG-23s they don't usually send out their MiG-29s though uh, we did realize that um, they, there were actually MiG-29s on the east coast that possibly could have maybe intercepted, but we get into a lot of details about combat radius and uh, missiles and all sorts of stuff. And really the overall conclusion there is very unlikely. It's technically possible, but they were well, going to be up against a lot.
1: It was technically possible as long as all the pieces fell into place.
0: Yeah, as, as long, you know, you, you like the... the I'm not sure if they were, were they YUSAF uh, F-15s, or were they South Korean? Uh,
1: it was both. It was at one point uh, okay. American, and then at one point they had a photo of the South Koreans also escorting them.
0: Okay, yeah. So it, it basically the, the South Koreans and or Americans, their brains would have to fall out and or the the North Koreans would have to get very lucky, but they were really up against it. It was kind of, a, it would it would have been a David versus Goliath situation, not to mention that the second they would see two, um, or two or more bogeys trying to intercept, uh, the B-1B would just turn around and leave, and then leave the the MiG-29s to feed the F-15s. But um,
1: <laughs>
0: I, I'm sure I probably triggered a lot of Russians there, but keep in mind, these are like, these are not, even the most modern Mig twenty nines, or even cap- most modern capable Russian aircraft, they're stuff from the eighties.
1: Well, it's not even just that; they're downgraded very variants. That yeah, specifically, yeah. there weren't there weren't the best that the Soviet Union had to offer in the eighties, and they're yeah. definitely not <laughs> up to spiff today.
0: So yeah, the overall conclusion uh, that we came to in the article was that it was technically possible, but they. It's very unlikely, and like we mentioned uh, at the very beginning of this little chat, the North Koreans have a very capable and you know, a very capable and reliable means of provocation through continued missile tests and uh, their nuclear program and things like that. They don't need to make such a, a reckless move against a B-1B. You know, I'm sure they would, of course they would definitely try to intercept a B-1B if it was, you know, penetrating their airspace and trying to actually strike something and who would blame them. But in this context, it's uh, it was a very far-fetched scenario. So just to conclude, um, I guess we'll leave a, a link for the, uh, the article if you want to read the whole thing. I mean, it's a little bit dated now. It's a little over a year old, but I mean, the overall conclusions still uh, hold up. Uh, But anyway, I hope you enjoyed this little uh, bonus chat and I'll see you next time.
1: Yep. Goodbye. Thanks.